Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to Office Hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus to learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. This is Office Hours on WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington. Brian Connors Mankey here. David Cole sitting to my left, interviewer extraordinaire who has a look of terror today because this Office Hours has been um, thrown together at the last minute. But that's not to say that it's not going to be perhaps one of the best or perhaps the best episode we've ever had because no we have fantastic guests and that is what really makes it. Uh, and so we also just recently heard a couple of vampire bass songs. A, it's Halloween week, and so we're trying to do a little bit of tie into that. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves because one of our guests or both of our guests will talk a little bit about um, things that are associated sometimes with um, Halloween or things that may scare some listeners. Before we even do that, I'm going to throw it over to David so he can get things started in general with the formalities of how we start off an interview show. Thank you, David. Formalities are my favorite. So today's guests, we have Professor Jean-Marie Rouillet-Willoughby from Modern and Classical Languages and Professor Matthew Godby from English. Welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on on such short notice, you two. No problem. Let's kick it off. We'll start with you, Professor Godby. Just kind of give us a short introduction to yourself and what you do at the University of Kentucky. Well, as you said, I'm in the English department. I teach a lot of different things in the English department. Currently, I'm teaching intro to black fiction, I'm teaching intro to film, and I'm teaching a text and context class. All the English majors have to take that. But primarily, I teach 20th century American literature, and probably my biggest focus here has been African American literature. I've taught quite a few classes, a lot of the introduction. It used to be major black writers, and now we call it intro to black fiction. So. Um, yeah, that's what I do in the department, and I've been here at UK since 1999. Quick question here, but since you do cover so many novels, would you say that you have a favorite that you've talked about in class? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I, I'm currently teaching one of my favorites for my text and context class, and that's The Intuitionist by Colson Whitehead. Um, he's a good author for this particular subject matter that we're talking about because he he operates in a lot of different genres. Mm-hmm. He, his most recent novel was a zombie novel called Zone One. But he's written everything from a coming-of-age novel to a sci-fi noir elevator inspector novel, which is The Intuitionist. So I would say that's probably one of my favorites. Excellent. Well, yeah. we'll definitely get back to the spooky a little bit later. But first, <laughs> uh, Professor Rouye Willoughby, can you introduce yourself to us? Sure. Um, I teach Russian language, Russian folklore, and linguistics. Um, I've been at UK 20 years, and I am the chair of Modern and Classical Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. I imagine that has to be an incredibly stressful position. (laughs) Some days. (laughs) (laughs) But the courses I teach uh, make up for it, because I get to teach Russian folklore, Introduction to Folklore and Mythology, a course called Vampires, Evolution of a Sexy Monster, 
semantics and pragmatics, language and culture, and then all levels of Russian language. Wow. See, I, I mean, just to reveal how uneducated I am, I know nothing about Russian folklore. So, um, real well, you've come to the right place to learn about it today. <laughs> <all those hours. laughs> I mean, that's what our show is for, right? Education. So, um, c- could you maybe recount a short version of a folktale for us? Like, maybe one that you find particularly interesting or just have a real love for? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, I could do that. There's a great story called The Sick Carries the Healthy. And it starts out with little sister Fox walking along and stealing some oatmeal from some women who were down at the at the shore doing their laundry. And the wolf comes upon her and says, I'm going to eat you. And she says, uh, don't eat me. I'll show you how to get food. And he says, what do you mean? And she says, look, I can eat my brains. Because what she's done is stuck her head in the oatmeal pot. So she's got oatmeal all over her head. And so she's licking it off. And he says, well, how do you get your brains out? And she says, you just run right into that tree. So he runs right into the tree and, you know, falls over. And he says, what are you doing? And she says, "Uh, I'm telling you how to get your brains out. And he says, but it didn't work. And she says, well, you didn't hit it hard enough. And so she tells him to do it again. And of course, it still doesn't work. She says, well, give me a ride. And we'll go down and to a place where I can show you how to do this. And he says, okay. And so she gets on his back. And as they're walking along, she sings, the sick carries the healthy, the sick carries the healthy. And he says, what are you singing? And she says, I'm singing the healthy carries the sick, the healthy carries the sick. Yeah. So in any case, they get down to the side of the river, which is frozen over. It's Russia in the winter. And she tells him to stick his tail in, and he'll catch lots of fish. And he sticks his tail in, and of course, was around his tail and he can't move and then she yells at all the women who are down the way doing their laundry wolf and they come and beat him to death <laughs> and the fox runs away wow alright yeah. <laughs> is that similar to I mean I know our folk tale of the three little pigs comes to us from would that, would that be grim yeah three little pigs um, comes in through the European tradition Yeah. does the wolf usually occupy a similar role as being sort of this predator that gets duped and ultimately vanquished or the wolf usually gets vanquished he's not usually as stupid as he is in the Russian tales in the Russian tales they set up a paradigm between the very smart female fox Mm -hmm. and the very stupid wolf fascinating male stupid man <laughs> so wolves, the threat is real. <laughs> yes, but they can be outfoxed. Oh, very nice. Oh. Thank you. Very yeah. nice. Very nice. I this like is that. this is why I'm here for an English degree. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've covered very briefly some of both of your research interests: the science fiction, the post-apocalypse, the folklore, all of this. I wonder if we could just briefly explore another one of those elements. Godwin, you want to go first? Sure, what element would you like to explore? Oh, Lord. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to throw that back on you. (laughs) uh, Well, I mean, I kind of want to know more about this intuitionist novel. You said a sci-fi noir elevator inspection. Right. I don't want to leave that hanging. (laughs) 
it is a lot to leave hanging. And if any of my students would be listening, I'm sure they're tired of hearing me <laughs> discuss the, the, the myriad elements. Um, it, it, it was this guy, Colson Whitehead. He was a young African-American writer, and it was his first book. And I think he stuffed everything that he likes into it. Okay. Um, the main character is a woman in an alternate version of New York City in the 1950s. And so she's trying to, she's African-American. She's trying to integrate the elevator inspectors, which is sort of the stand-in for, like, the big government job, you know. And she's an intuitionist, meaning that she can tell what's wrong with an elevator by intuiting it. She doesn't actually look at anything. She stands by it and can sense what is wrong with it. We need her at P.O.T. We do need her at P.O.T. Since last week, I opened an elevator door and the firemen were standing there. (laughs) Yeah. Full suits. Full suits. She she would stand there by the elevator and would in her mind picture what was wrong with it. She would not she would be a good person to have. So it's it's kind of a pastiche. It's got everything in there. Um he even takes a character out of Marvel Comics, the Daredevil, who there's a reporter. I forget his name is Ben and I'm I'm blanking on his last name at the moment. He just stuffs it all in there, and it's this really interesting, entertaining allegory about race in the 1950s, hmm. but told in an alternate universe that looks a lot like kind of a noir mystery. Huh. I don't know if I've done it justice or made it sound <laughs> interesting to read. Um, Where's he from? Hmm? Where's the author from? He grew up in New York City. He has went to Harvard. He's probably in his late 40s by now, so young African-American man. So it, it combines a lot of my own personal interest is why I like the book. I really am interested in genre, mm-hmm. is a, you know, genre fiction, so detective novels, science fiction, alternate histories, um, and, it combine, and it puts that into the context of African-American fiction. So I find it to be a really sort of non-traditional way into a lot of those topics that you get often in a more traditional format. Would you say you have a great interest in elevators, however? I will tell you this. If you read the book, you will think about elevators a lot more than you ever had. I don't know if that's possible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unless you work in POT. (laughs) Well, you know, he makes a great point that we don't often think about elevators until something goes wrong. Um, We don't often think about elevators much at all, but... A lot of modern life, especially urban life, would not be possible without the elevator. Mm -hmm. It allowed us to grow up instead of out. So cities could be very concentrated and and grow upward instead of spreading out. So you get New York versus Atlanta, if you've ever been to sprawling sprawling Atlanta. But (laughs) the elevators are very important and integral, but we don't often think about them. Mm -hmm. All right, well... So there you go. I'm sure that that was <laughs> fascinating for everybody, but it, it's a really entertaining book, and I would encourage anybody to read it. All right. Uh, we've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll hear from you, Professor Rudier Willoughby. And we're back with Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. Before the break, we were setting up Professor Rudier Willoughby here to talk about some of her research interests, and I think... While you were enjoying a very nice vampire song, we settled on the idea of talking about vampires. Right. So, Professor Ruye Willoughby, can you tell us about some of the folkloric traditions of the vampire? Sure. Uh, That's how I come to vampires, through uh, Slavic folklore. Um, That is, what most people don't know is that the vampire originated in the Slavic world. 
and not just because people mistakenly think that Vlad the Impaler was a vampire. That's not part of the folklore. That's a creation of Bram Stoker. Um, the folklore of the vampire is really intriguing because what happens in the Russian folk tradition is if you mourn too much, you draw the dead back to you. And when they get up, they come and eat their relatives, systematically wiping out the entire family. Vampires in Slavic folklore tend not to drink blood. They basically suck life force. Mothers come back to feed their children. Wives and husbands come back to be with their spouse. Vampires can actually father children. So one of the ways you can become a vampire is to be fathered by an undead creature. Another way you can become a vampire is to be a heretic. You can become a vampire by being born on a certain day of the year, for example, by being born on Christmas Day, which is not good because Christ was born on Christmas Day and you shouldn't try to do that. <laughs> um, How dare you? you? You had sex so that you could be born on Christmas Day, and that's a no-no. Uh, you can be born with a call on your head. You can be born with hair, with teeth. There's all kinds of traditions about this. And so then if the people in the village would suspect that you're a vampire, they would dig up the body and stake it, cut the head off, fill the mouth with garlic, turn the head around, break the, cut the tendons in the legs, break the legs, fill the coffin with sand because vampires, is, in case nobody knows, are OCD. And they will spend the entire night counting the pieces of sand so by the sunrise they won't get up. They try, vampires try to bring, if, they, if they're ma not married, they'll try to bring the person they were engaged to to the grave to live with them in the grave, which is also never good. So all of this tradition starts um, primarily in, from the 1700s to the 1900s, passing into Western Europe. Hmm. Uh, because there were documented vampire attacks and then epidemics for lack of a better word, where the people in Serbia, for example, would dig up a lot of graves, and that makes it into the Western media. Once it gets into the West, it starts being interpreted by the literary people, as well as by newspaper accounts. The other way it got into Europe was people in Britain, for example, Germany, doing tours of exotic locales, right? Uh, touring the continent in the case of Britain. Byron, for example, goes to Greece. He learns about the vampire in Greece. He comes back, uh, the romantics are all sitting around on that weekend, the weekend that Mary Shelley created Frankenstein. Byron sketches out a vampire story. It eventually gets stolen by his doctor, <laughs> Polidori, who publishes it, saying it was really Byron's story. And that was the first recorded English language vampire story. Hmm. And from there, it just took off. And many of the things like the sucking of blood, the connection to Vlad the Impaler, the idea that they are susceptible to Christian symbols or religious symbols of some kind, all of that was brought in from the West. And from there, we start to evolve into this beautiful vampire, if you will, right? Because my argument about the vampire is it, it shows whatever the social problems are, are. It's a reflection of the social problems of the day. Mm -hmm. So in the Russian village or in the Serbian village, it's a very different set of social problems than it is in Victorian England, and than it is in 1990s America, right, when Anne Rice is writing. Um, and part of what's going on is this desire for long life and eternal youth in the American culture, for example, and the vampire starts to be more and more beautiful, but also carry with it a curse of sorts. 
Um, in the 1980s, in particular, vampire films focus around family crisis, where all the vampires are traveling in families or create families. So the so-called American middle-class family is in collapse, but the vampires are creating good families. What's the movie that takes place in the South? I think it was Catherine Bigelow. Near Dark. Near Dark. Yeah, my students watch that in the class. So, so that's vampires in a nutshell. Huh. How has the tradition changed in Slavic countries over the hundreds of years? Right, that's a really interesting question, because what happened was... Um, <laughs> The Slavic tradition was bifurcated among the peasant classes, and then the nobles or the upper classes weren't connected to that peasant folklore in any way. Um, as a result, in the 1800s, 19th century, when in Western Europe this becomes fashionable, that tradition gets reimported into Russian literature, and so they reflect the Western reinterpretation of their own folklore in their literature. So my students also read Gogol and Turgenev and Tolstoy's versions of vampire stories that were affected by that Western tradition. Yeah. And, but is there still kind of that first wave peasant tradition that still like lives on somehow? It lives on among the people that are, are in the serf class, but not among the people that own the land the serfs work on. Hmm. You, you mentioned that if you mourned too much. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting idea. It's like an instructive tale yeah. to not mourn too much. Do, does that does that idea of how to mourn properly still kind of exist in this Slavic countries or where it, where it originated, that there's a proper way to mourn and you can't maybe indulge in your mourning too much? Yes. Um, there's a very regimented series of steps you have to go through to mourn. Um, so at 20 days you do something, in 40 days you do something, hmm. at six months you do something, in a year you do something. Um, but if you dream about the dead, you're supposed to feed the dead. So that could be off cycle, if you will. Um, but if you have a dream, your grandparents died, so my grandmother died, and you have a dream that your grandmother's talking to you, you get up and you make blinli, which are crepes, pancakes, uh, and you take them to your coworkers or your school, or wherever you are, and feed people in her name. This is a far from academic question, but in your professional opinion, <laughs> what type of vampire is the coolest? Is it the original oh. Slavic kind of zombie-ish vampire who comes back from the morning and feeds on life force and all of this? Yeah. The, let's say, middle period kind of Dracula vampire with the blood sucking and whatnot, or... Just to give everybody a fair shake, the modern-day over-sexualized vampire. Huh. They all have their appeal. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it probably depends on what mood I'm in. I really like the folkloric vampire because, the Slavic vampire, because that's my field, and Slavic tradition is really interesting to me. And it relates, you, you see how, as, as you just brought up, the ritual and the story and the practices and the beliefs are all tied into a very coherent picture. Mm -hmm. And you can't understand one without the other. It doesn't make sense if there, to, for there to be vampires if you don't know something about the ritual belief and practice. It, it sounds like such a much more idiosyncratic kind of vampire, like with the sand and the OCD, oh, whereas you know the, the way we can 
Americanized and watered down so that we end up with Twilight films. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the vampire that you described filled with sand and turning the head and filling the mouth with garlic, yeah. that's so much more intriguing. And, it, you know, if somebody were to write that into a film nowadays, people would be probably praising it and saying, wow, how creative and how right. fat, what a fascinating take on the vampire tradition instead of the glittery, um, <laughs> hypersexualized Robert Pattinson yeah. version of vampires. Indeed. The vampire is very broody, but he's also so interesting. Yeah. I, I always find him to be the most, like the Robert Pattinson character, I find to be the most boring person <laughs> so on the screen. Boring. <laughs> he's <laughs> absolutely boring. Kind of a blank cipher. You're just staring at him and you're like, this well, is the what. The same is true in the Vampire Diaries, right? Where, where you have the two brothers, and the one brother that's supposed to be the good brother has got to be the most boring, right. ill-conceived character, and the bad boy is the one that is interesting. Right. I mean, not that The Vampire Diaries is great television, but of the two, right. it's the bad guy. Mm. Well, we've got to take a short break, and uh, we'll be back with more on Office Hours. Now, to continue on with our guests and our... Host with the most, David Cole. Hello again. <laughs> During the break, we talked briefly about a different kind of monster, and that was the zombie. I think that maybe just keeping with the Halloween theme, it'd be interesting to transition from the vampire to the zombie. I mean, we'll keep things ooky spooky today. Um, <laughs> so, Professor Godby. The last semester, you taught an intro to lit course that had a specific focus on post-apocalyptic literature, and there was a lot of, uh, or there was a bit of zombie material there. Uh, Walking Dead, this Zone One novel that you mentioned before. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about this movement towards the literary zombie. Well, like as we were talking about with the vampire, I think the zombie is a, an amazingly malleable cultural archetype that whatever's going on at a given time you can create a zombie that sort of speaks to fear speaks to what's happening you know i'm thinking of i am legend mm -hmm. you know if you go back and read the original i am legend it looks much different than the will smith version of i am legend and the will smith version is zombies that are created by some sort of experimentation in a lab, some sort of medical, biological experimentation finds its way out of the lab into the public at large and people become zombies. Mm -hmm. um, Colson Whitehead, who wrote Zone One to speak about the literary zombie, it, it's a much more, I hesitate to say philosophical because that sounds sort of heady and boring and my students might argue that it was. His zombies they're not exactly sure why they become zombies, but they return to places of work and they return to homes and they keep doing the same thing over and over again that they did in life. And so the zombie becomes this way to kind of talk about how we're already almost zombies. Hmm. That there's, in the book, there's very little difference between what the zombies are doing and what we were already doing in our everyday lives. So, you know, writers see in the zombie a figure that, that is just ripe for reinterpretation. You know, and like, like vampires and like all genres, there's certain conventions that they work in, but then what's interesting is the way they tweak those conventions and try to do something a little bit different with it. Mm -hmm. So I think Colson Whitehead was trying to speak to a certain millennial 2000s angst that people have about life that we're all just sort of going through the motions. 
And that, that happens a lot, you know. It's interesting if you think about it from the point of view of we become zombies because, or the people in the novel, because they're doing the same exact things they did in life. When in the Slavic tradition in the 19th century, the vampires are doing the same things they did in life, but out of altruistic reasons. Mm. They want to be, the family's calling them back and they miss the family. It's the mother's obligation to the child, right? So it's a, it's the same exact behavior, but from a different, very different perspective. Right. You know, I think about a lot of the post-apocalyptic ideas come about. They're they're much more predictive than they are descriptive. In other words, they're trying. They're not. They're descriptive instead of predictive. They're trying to describe our current state by extrapolating and saying we could end up here mm-hmm. if we're not careful. So in Zone One. We could be like zombies that just keep returning to our places of business every day, day in and day out, and just sort of going through the motions. So I, I think, you know, there's obviously the the attraction to a zombie because it's popular. Right. But then there's there's something else in it that allows people to kind of work in a tradition that they can then make their own. So I, that, that's what I find interesting about it is that all zombies look sort of similar but they're also really kind of different. Mm-hmm. And I think it's definitely interesting to think of Zone 1 as, to borrow the term, a heady version of the zombie narrative when like, you're talking about the zombies returning to what they're doing in their everyday lives before they died, sounding very similar to like the very old George Romero kind of idea of consumerist zombies in a shopping mm-hmm. mall. Right, yeah. You you have the uh, the day of the dawn of the living dead, where mm-hmm. you know the 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 survivors end up at a mall, and there's a point in there where they say that they're just coming back and doing what they've always doing, which is just mindlessly shopping. You know, post apocalyptic zombie novels they're often very much have at their core sort of this kind of the the form is the Jeremiah. You know, they're kind of pointing out how what's happened in society, how mm-hmm. have we fallen. And, you know, people are struggling to kind of remake a society in the wake of all the faults that we had, whether that's, all, you know, biological experimentation, consumerism, you know, they're pointing out all these flaws that America has. And so the people are struggling to remake society and the zombies are there as sort of like, I don't want to say in the way, but you have to kind of wipe the slate clean to start over. Mm-hmm. Something else that I think would be interesting to bring up when we're talking about zombies and vampires. You know, in a vampire narrative, or at least the ones I'm familiar with, which granted aren't that many, um, there's room for the vampire to be a character, like a very defined character, Count Dracula, and all the way up to, well, not quite Twilight, I don't know if you would call those characters, but... Um, they're a form of character. They sure. They're great characters. Flat characters. <laughs> characters. An example of how not to write a character. Yeah. But, um... The, especially in you know something like Interview with a Vampire, where the vampire gets to play a very prominent role right. as a person. But in the zombie narrative, the zombies, while they have elements of being characters, are really there, it seems, to serve pushing survivors and other human beings into the spotlight so that they can develop. Especially in The Walking Dead. I mean, Right, and I think The Walking Dead is a perfect example is that these, these stories are often more about society and about forming a new society, a new community about families than they are about the actual, the monsters. I mean, it, what it's interesting what has created the monsters, but then the monsters themselves become sort of uninteresting mm-hmm. because all they do is just move forward and are mindlessly and, brain, and blown away. 
but actually, if you go back to the original I Am Legend, which was written, I think, in the 1950s, there's a real inversion at the end where the zombies are the new society. Yeah. And hmm. the man who is killing them is the actual monster. He's been killing sentient thinking beings. He only saw them as monsters. And so it, that's, it's surprising the way that story has gotten watered down into I Am Legend. Not that that's a bad movie, but I think it lost a little bit of the interesting kind of the humanity of it where the zombies are much more intriguing and complex than modern zombies. Mm -hmm. And there was that new movie that whose name escapes me about a love affair between a zombie and he has character. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And a and a young woman and they're dating. But oh, I think it's true in the sense of the vampires become they have more character and they actually become the normal society in mm -hmm. many ways, right? Reflecting the problems of the rest of society, uh, even though people want to kill them. <laughs> um, I mean, inversions on a narrative are always fun, right? I mean, that's why Shaun of the Dead is such a good zombie movie. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, and, and Shaun of the Dead is a perfect example of, I think somebody said it's the, the mutability of the character. It, it can fit into anything you want. Like mm -hmm. you said, we have, we have rom-com zombie films now. I, I wish I could remember the name. It has the word yeah. heart in it. And, it, it, yeah, it's a romantic comedy. And you have the Shaun of the Dead, which is kind of this parody slash zombie right. thriller, you know. Um, so it's, it's a very, I said earlier, a malleable form. You can shape it and do pretty much anything you want with it. Mm -hmm. Warm Bodies Warm is the name bodies. of that movie. Right. Fun fact. So we'll leave that with you. we got to go to a quick break, and we'll be back with more Office Hours. Back here on Office Hours, WRFL 88.1, Radio Free Lexington. Got another uh, 10 minutes or so before we are out of here, and we're going to shift gears once again, I think. We're probably exhausting all the zombie and vampire talk. Most people won't know. <laughs> Jean Marie says, let's go, let's do it some more. No, um, but uh, we had been talking while the music was playing a little bit about another one of uh, Professor Godby's interests, which is novels set in kind of urban settings and uh, 20th century kind of stuff with that too and so we turned a little bit towards Lexington's one of Lexington's hot button topics at the moment which is the murals that have been um, coming up over the last few years um, a lot through the Prohibition which is a now in its third or fourth year uh, which brought us things like the Lincoln mural and other ones around town um, and the most recent that has been catching a lot of uh, interesting discussion and debate is the one on Manchester by the artist MTO um, as you head out Manchester out of town that is just on a grand, grand, massive scale. Um, so I wanted to tap into Professor Godby's brain about the topic of murals in Lexington and as well as maybe a little bit of background on um, street art, graffiti art as well, and maybe where it shows up maybe in some things that you've um, taught as well. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm teaching an intro to film class this semester, and, it, and we are doing films set in American cities, and we just recently got through with some mid-70s on up into the early 90s films, such as uh, Death Wish, Falling Down, The Warriors, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned street art and graffiti because you know for a period of time graffiti became secondhand 
shorthand, a symbol for everything that was wrong with American cities. You know, if you think about the classic image of urban film, of urban settings in film, is a subway covered in graffiti. And that tapped into just these fears for the rest of America that cities were out of control. You know, but also in the 80s, you had the real commodification and the selling of graffiti, whether that was um, Basquiat and uh, Keith Haring. And you had people that would move from street art to legitimate art. So there's always been this, I think, a tension between street art and legitimate art. You know, and at its core, graffiti is, is about making your mark on a territory that, is, that you live in but is really not your own. You know, the earliest graffiti was tagging and people would literally just write their names. I think it was, uh, I forget the original guy in the 1970s. Um, so I, I think what you're seeing playing out in Lexington is this idea between street art and legitimate art. And you know, we were talking off air about what is legitimate street art and what is not legitimate street art. And it seems like sort of, kind of maybe the crux of this debate is Abraham Lincoln's okay because it's Abraham Lincoln and it speaks to Kentucky whereas the art on Manchester Street, it, it doesn't seem to speak to Lexington or Kentucky, it's more about the artist himself. But there, there's all sorts of street art. I'm a big fan of the street art, you know? Anything that gets you to pay attention to your surroundings and to sort of embed yourself in urban space and look around and look at the buildings and think about where you're actually at, I'm a fan of that. Um, but it, it does pull in a lot of debates about private space, public space, and a lot of issues that are come to the forefront when you're looking at urbanism and 20th century American cities. In the folk tradition, my students watch a film about graffiti, and whether it's considered art or not, and much of the establishment, if you will, in New York City and Boston argues, you're des desecrating public property, you know, this costs us a lot of money, we have to clean all these subway cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the artists are saying, this is our voice, and it's connected to an entire cultural pattern. Um, dance, again, is connected to the art, which is connected to their representation of who they are, and they feel that they are powerless in the city, and this is one way that they can get to do it. And the students who've always looked at, or typically have looked at graffiti as being you're just defacing public property, see it from a very different perspective when they realize it's people who are simply trying to say, we're here and we have something to say. Right, I think if you look at it from the perspective of private businesses having their buildings marked on, then of course graffiti is a menace. If you look at it as a cultural expression, you know, graffiti was one of the five things of uh, key aspects of hip hop. Right. You had break dancing, DJing, rapping, graffiti. You know, and that was all kind of together. And so in that way, it's a cultural expression. And, and so that's why I said I think it's really indicative of some of the key tensions between public space, private space. You mentioned a lot of people who live in cities, especially if you're thinking about the 1970s in New York. They felt powerless, you know, and they were living in projects that were built by these faceless public entities and then just left to fall apart. Yep. And so it's a way to make your mark on a territory. I don't know if any of that has any relevance for Manchester Street, but I certainly think it's an interesting debate that I am very much interested to see how it plays out because I like what they're doing with the on the buildings. I think it draws attention to these places. So does it mean that uh, <clears throat> Lexington has finally become an urban city? 
<laughs> I don't want to go on record saying that yet. <laughs> we have some of the accoutrements of urban yes. cities. <laughs> we are taking baby steps. <laughs> um, but no, I you know it's it's like it's like the food trucks. You know, it, it's something that's trying to create more of a public a sense of public space and public community it's just a matter of how you do it yeah. and it's always going to cause tension you know even with the food trucks which everybody loves brick and mortar restaurants there's a debate about that and there's a debate about where they park you know it, it's just sort of reforming reformatting urban space and trying to figure out the best way to do it see i I have a whole new perspective on graffiti and street art now. I mean, I'm just a sophomore, but when I first came to Lexington and one of the first things that I saw is the giant Abraham Lincoln, I was like, oh my God. Because like back in my town, out in the middle of Nowheresville, USA, by way of Kentucky Route Zero, like (laughs) there's um, the only graffiti where like punk spraying their names on stop signs and also ICP because that was a weirdly popular thing in my town. I think um, weirdly is weird is a good yeah. Yeah. description. <laughs> it's a good description. Um, but uh, you know, it was it was never anything and my only other uh, exposure to it would be like in films. Mm-hmm. And the the films always portrayed like these young thugs like spraying things and then they were never a threat to the hero like in the first Tim Burton Batman or one of the RoboCops there's a mm-hmm. scene where they just they're spray painting and RoboCop shows up and they just oh. run and it's like it's it's never well, that's like I said, it's shorthand for urban disorder and mm-hmm. crime. I, I would suggest if you're interested in it, you, if you're interested in like early graffiti, there's a movie called Style Wars, which is a great documentary about uh, graffiti in the 1980s. And then there's a movie that was made at the same time that was called, um, and I'm going to draw a blank on that one, but it's an early rap film and they have actual graffiti artists in there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it is a, it's, it's a different perspective on it. And, and I think too often it's made it into my, mainstream popular culture as a sign of what's wrong with cities. Very good. I think we are ready to sign off. We want to thank again, once again, Professors Godby, Rue Willoughby, David Cole for guiding things in such an expertise manner. You wouldn't even know he's scrunching his nose. Thank you for joining WRFL's Office Hours. We will see you again right back here next week. Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Drupi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive.